When you need to refuel between meetings or running errands, or you just want a healthy snack that squashes your hunger, wonderful pistachios, which come in a variety of flavors and sizes, by the way, are the perfect choice to fill you up and keep you going throughout the day. Wonderful Pistachios is also a good source of protein and a zero-guilt snack. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, guys, which gives you over 10% of your daily value. And with flavors like salt and pepper, sweet chili, and seasoned salt in the shelled variety, options like chili roasted, sea salt, and vinegar or jalapeno lime in the no-shell variety, you're sure to please your taste buds while snacking healthy. So check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 25% off Alliant Naturals site-wide, any supplement you can think of just for the Keeping It Real listeners. All you have to do is go to alliannaturals.com, pick out anything, anything you want from multi-collagen peptides to organic grain superfood powders, pre and probiotics, krill oil, you name it. We got you covered or they got you covered. You just enter the code JILL, J-I-L-L, 25, JILL25 at checkout and you will get 25% off your entire order of anything in the store site wide. So check it out. All right, my beautiful babies. The fitness app has a free trial. I want you to check it out. If you've got the meal tracker app, the food planning app, the running app, the yoga app, the meditation app, the breathwork app, Stop. Right now, stop the insanity because the fitness app is a one-stop shop. It's got it all, guys. It customizes your meal plans based on your food preferences and your personal health goals. It customizes your workouts based on where you want to train, your fitness level, your fitness goals, whether you're in the gym, at home, outside. You have a baby coming in. It's prenatal fitness. You want to get crazy with Ryan Clarenbach and do his beast mode program from yoga to kickboxing. We have you covered. There are meditations in the app. There's sleep support with Jim Donovan, self-care with Jamie McFadden, free trial. Just go to the app store, whether you're on Android, Google Play, the Apple iTunes store. It's there for you. Download it. Give it a try. I think you're going to love it. Welcome to Keeping It Real Conversations with Jillian Michaels. All right, team. Today's conversation is with Dr. Matthew Johnson. So he's a PhD. He is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins. Um, And I, I mean, this guy specializes in treating addiction and he has for decades. With that said, there's a twist to this story. He's been working with psychedelics since 2004, and he looks at the use of psychedelics in the clinical treatment of addiction and things like PTSD and anxiety, quitting cigarettes, and so on. So I've become kind of a 
psycho fan of his, and I have listened to a, a host of interviews that he's done and read his papers and his lectures. And the long and the short of this is that his success rates in helping people overcome what may seem insurmountable from quitting smoking to uh, dealing with terminal cancer. And I, there's a, there's a wide range here, um, but in helping them find peace, answer the big questions, make huge changes in their life, heal and get better. He's, he's functioning in, he's breathing rarefied air. He's in like 80% success rate for helping people quit smoking. If you look at what the statistics are for an individual who tries to quit smoking, it's like in the single digits. And the same goes for overcoming obesity and all of the other things. Not The point of this is not to be abysmal. The point is to tell you that there's some really incredible people doing some really cutting edge work in helping people like you and me overcome deeper shit, guys. And it doesn't have to be tobacco. It doesn't have to be food. It doesn't have to be some crazy addiction. It could be that you're just, you're stuck in your life and you're looking for a bigger purpose. And he calls those, those of us the quote, healthy normals, right? That seek to reignite that spark or answer the bigger questions, as I said. And then it's helping people that are kind of tragically stuck, whether it's with something like anorexia or a fatal addiction, a drug addiction, methamphetamine, cocaine, things like that. So we're going to jump right in with Dr. Matthew Johnson. I think some of the stuff you're going to hear is really going to inspire you and give you hope and just open up an infinity of potential and possibility. So I'm really excited to present this one, guys. Here we go. First of all, I think I've geeked out on you uh, quite a bit. I only geeked out this bad on Dr. David Sinclair. Uh, I'm obsessed with your work. I'm obsessed with you. I'm so excited to have you on. So welcome to the show. <laughs> oh, thank you. So I'm, 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 I'm a fan. And so the respect is, uh, is, is mutual. Um, uh, guys, by the way, I've, I've taken to calling Dr. Johnson, Matt. I feel like I know him because I've watched. Please. Can I can I call you Matt? Matt please, um, please. Uh, I'll think you're Matt, talking to someone else if you say Dr. Johnson. I'll be like, who who else are you talking to? Okay. <laughs> so so Matt, um, in doing homework on you, you're a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. And you've mm -hmm. been working in psychedelics, correct me if I've got my info wrong here, since 2004. Right. But that is your background. And it, always addiction. It seems like a tobacco addiction and like how people are spending their money and addiction, addiction, addiction. What made you shift? Because I mean, there are people in psychiatry and behavioral sciences that don't go into psychedelics. What prompted that shift? Yes. Yeah, so different answers, but from one more at the superficial level, there is a commonality in terms of much of my work being focused on addiction and obviously a lot of addiction relates to substances, psychoactive drugs. So more studying the dark side, you know, so I've studied, you know, cocaine and methamphetamine and alcohol, you know, legal or illegal, a lot of work with tobacco, you know, you name it, uppers, downers, all arounders. Right. Um, and so just that you could call it psychopharmacology or behavioral pharmacology, studying the effects, including in the lab when you give people these drugs under safe and supervised conditions. 
you know, whether it's caffeine or cocaine, like what are the effects of these drugs with ethical guidelines? Like you wouldn't give cocaine to someone who wasn't a, a current user who's not looking to quit. So the idea is, hey, do it a couple of times with us you know, uh, you know, some un, uh, with the doctor watching what you're doing on a regular basis at home. So with those sort of ethical caveats, but basically getting people loaded up on sus, uh, on substances and studying their effects, but also like looking at the, from what you can call a behavioral economics lens, um, understanding the decision-making that underlies addiction. So moving to psychedelics in one sense is a kind of, a, is just another aspect of psychopharmacology, a drug class, um, you know, that is ripe, at least when I jumped into it, really ripe for investigation. They had been ignored for decades in the science and especially human, you know, scientific work. And, 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 and so in terms of understanding, you know, the effects of these very psychoactive substances, I was very interested in the psychedelics, but if you combine that with the interest in addiction itself and, and much of my work with these other drugs and most substances of abuse can be drugs of addiction. Um, in other words, you can get hooked on them. So that's a huge part of what I've, I've studied, not the only thing, but I was also very intrigued by the psychedelics about their kind of empowering the apparent, you know, uh, potential use of them to empower people to overcome addictions, which I kind of see is where the rubber meets the road. Like, you say this has changed your life and I, I believe you, but you know, let's let's see if it really can push around a behavior that you've been struggling with for years or, or decades. I mean, and and something like smoking is really nice because as an addiction, as a substance addiction, um, it's very quantifiable. Everyone knows how many cigarettes they smoke, you know, whether it's like they buy a pack yes. every day or every two days, every three days. So you know what, you know, in terms of self-report. And also we've got, it's pretty cheap to do it. You can test someone through breath samples and collecting their pee. You can biologically verify, which is frankly more difficult with something like alcohol. So smoking really, like really fit, fit a lot of those criteria for me. And just something that was very, I had been doing work with since graduate school in terms of just understanding the psychology, understanding the effects of nicotine and tobacco, the addiction to it. I put it this way, if you're interested in psychopharmacology or the study of, of drugs and the human mind, either you've got to be interested in the psychedelics or you don't know much about them. Because if you just look broadly, the history of indigenous use, the, the huge effects in our culture since the 1960s when they became more popular, I mean, just countless anecdotes, you know, there's something interesting going on here. And, and to me, like, so you just can't dismiss it as, oh, this is just sort of wishful thinking by a bunch of hippies. It's, it's been such a long standing. <laughs> I mean, the idea that multiple right. religions incorporate these things into ceremonial frameworks that seem sustainable. Um, I mean, that's part of the puzzle too. Like, right. I, I think there's really something there. Okay. I want to jump all the way back for a second and give you probably some insight into one of the reasons I'm so obsessed with you, other than the fact that you're incredibly intelligent, incredibly well-spoken, overwhelmingly affable, and a daringly handsome, good-looking guy. Uh, <laughs> good thing they can't see me on this interview. They, they, they know you're <laughs> being very kind and fibbing a that bit. Is, that is not true at all. <laughs> um, truthfully, because you're probably like, why is this fitness lady so obsessed with me? You and I were talking before we even started the show, and you were giving, and I'm so grateful. You're like, you know what? It's, it sucks that people out there are negating 
some of the simple science with regard to weight loss. We weren't even talking addiction. And to be honest, here's the thing. Yeah, I I can take calories away, right? And I could make somebody work out. Biggest loser did work. Big, small, 100 pounds gone. That works. What did mm-hmm. they do? They ate less, they moved more. And then Matt, 65% of them, which is which is actually a shockingly good number, put the weight back on. And in real life, 95% of the, of the people that I work with or don't work with that lose weight, put it back on. And everybody wants to blame bullshit like diet culture and this and that. And the truth of the matter is, if you are 50, 60, 70, up, 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 and up pounds overweight, you have an addiction to food for one reason or another. Yes. And, and as I have watched what you have done with people and how you've done it, I was like, son of a bitch, does this guy have the answer? Um, not just, right? Not just to tobacco and alcohol and this and that. And I work with therapists. I've been in therapy. My mom's a psychoanalyst. And my mom mm. was like, honey, it is the hardest work to break somebody of a food addiction over alcohol, over tobacco, over, she's like, it is some of my hardest work. And she's a PhD psychoanalyst because the shit is so deep, she says. And they're so defended and so unconscious that sometimes like no matter how, we don't get there. They don't get there. Right, I agree. And, and I was like, this guy is onto something serious. So, or seriously powerful, I'm meaning. So I'm wondering, you mentioned religions, traditions, ceremonies. Can we go back here and talk mm-hmm. about, first of all, what drugs are we referring to? Are we talking about like peyote, psilocybin? Because I think there's a stigma, right? People are thinking, well, cocaine is the devil's drug. There's a huge stigma about this. What drugs are good? What drugs are bad? All useful? Yeah, you're going broad there. I really like this question. I know, sorry. Um, <laughs> No, no, I really, I I really appreciate it. Now, you know, to clarify, you know, when I've given, you know, cocaine and methamphetamine and and studies, it's been as to understand some of the bad stuff. So for example, I've done a lot of work with those drugs in terms of like understanding sexual risk behavior. Um, And actually I did the first research that's ever shown that and to a lot of people that either have run a cocaine addiction treatment clinic or have dabbled in, in coke themselves you know, it wouldn't be a surprise to them, but there's a huge connection between um, sexual risk and people get loaded up on stimulants and they would do things that they normally wouldn't do in a lot of different ways. And they'll have riskier yes. sex, engage in unprotected sex when they wouldn't otherwise. And so I d- I've done stuff like study condom use decisions with hypothetical scenarios, but really getting people on cocaine, having them look at photos of attractive people and, and say like, what would you do if you're in a casual situation right now? And they, and, and to understand some things like that. Now there are like to actually be clear, methamphetamine, actually both methamphetamine and cocaine are approved by the FDA as medicines. Um, you may not, you know, under the is that trade like ADD de- medication? Like methamphetamine? Yes, methamphetamine is still approved, and it's actually the trade name is Desoxin. There are generics, but it's oral. Wow. It's a pill. It's very much like Adderall. It's a pill with straight up methamphetamine in it, and chemically and and pharmacologically, the distinction between amphetamine, which is in Adderall, for example, and methamphetamine is 
you have to look very, very, very hard scientifically to find much of a meaningful difference whatsoever. They are wow. essentially the same drug. And so you can usually as a, a third or fourth thing, if nothing else else works for ADHD, for example, you could get a prescription of um, of, of, of oral methamphetamine. Um, now, cocaine is only approved as for its local effects. In other words, not getting oh, people. Novocaine. Exactly. So for throat and um, just topically, so throat and nasal surgery, um, it can, it's really good at numbing to do surgery. So the idea is it's not getting, it's not, people aren't getting high on it. Okay. The way they they can get this, you can call it high, you can call it whatever. It's a psychoactive effect, but on Adderall or disoxin, which is methamphetamine. So even those drugs, I like to remind people, these are all tools um, and there can be good. It's like, is a, a knife good being or bad? abused, right. Yeah, it's like that same, a blade can like, yeah, it can like stab you in a, in a, in an alley where I'm at in Baltimore, it's probably going to be a gun, but <laughs> yeah, but you know, a knife, but that same type of blade could cut out that um, cancerous tumor that would yep. have killed you in, in an operating room. And so it's very much, and I remind people about opioids, um, again, here in Baltimore, um, you see all the good stuff. You can't drive past, you know, just the bus stops downtown without seeing people nodding out on opioids, unfortunately. It's really, this is very much a, a heroin town, mostly fentanyl now, but we, they call it dope here, basically, you know, opioids. Um, but pharmacologically indistinguishable from what you would get, you know, in the hospital or as pain medication. Now, of course, opioids massively overused for chronic pain and we know that's just a mistake and and that's where a lot of the problems come from but for acute traumatic pain so you break your hip you know maybe a good right. example your grandmother breaks her hip and she's like you hope that she's gonna get that morphine in the hospital because that's where it's still indispensable to the practice of medicine and there's nothing better and a lot of those safeguards the the real risk is sending someone home with a big supply you know, with a condition yes. like chronic pain where, you know, it's not like, oh, we have this like, you know, two weeks where there's intense pain and you use it during that time. But like this condition is there the rest of your life. And so that's where you can do real problems. So indispensable to the to the practice of medicine that it, for acute traumatic pain, pharmacologically, you know, like I was saying about amphetamine and methamphetamine, virtually identical. It's same pharmacology, mu opioid receptor, whether you're seeing someone nodding out on heroin or fentanyl at the bus stop in Baltimore, whether they're getting it after they broke their hip, but the context completely, you know, changes that risk benefit profile. So I think of drugs like that. Do you also think of things like psilocybin like that? Because they, I don't know, you did, so, so, what there are the can be negative that... effects from psilocybin for sure. And it's really hard to imagine any powerful tool that doesn't have uh, a downside to go along with the good side. So one of the things people will be familiar with is the bad trip. Now, okay. the science would suggest, you know, when you really compare it to drugs like cocaine and like really alcohol and tobacco or the, you know, some of the biggies, like in terms of the real world harms to self and others, um, that you know psychedelics like like psilocybin which is in magic mushrooms for those not not familiar it, it, it pales in comparison so it's very low on the scale when you look at the prevalence and the but it is a very real phenomenon some mo most of the time when someone has a so-called bad trip which is essentially a panic reaction very strong anxiety and that can come along with a distortion of reality like you might think the you're being chased by the cia even though you're you know you're not 
you know, someone dealing with schizophrenia, but while you're on a psychedelic, you can feel you, you can step into a world temporarily where it looks like, you know, you're having those delusional behaviors that normally associate with schizophrenia. Most of the time when people have those experiences in the wild, I like to say, you know, so they're not in a clinical trial, <laughs> right. they're just partying with right. their friends. Most of the time people are fine. As long as you don't go out and do something uh, stupid, you know, we call it behavioral toxicity, meaning doing something stupid, like running across the road when you're freaking out and you get hit by a car. Uh, Sometimes that does happen. And it was okay. overplayed in the, in the 60s with some of the prop anti, you know, psychedelic propaganda with LSD. But but there, in fact, have been some people that have fallen from a window or jumped, and and sometimes it's hard to tell. But there are some cases where it looks like, yeah, it seemed like they probably thought they could fly. Yeah, um, I've it's heard not... those stories. You kind of wonder if they're like urban legends or some girl jumped down a trash chute and died. But I often wondered, is that real or is that just fear mongering? Like, can it go that far south? It's a it, it's some of both, like a lot of okay. things. There is usually a kernel of truth, and and amongst those with a vulnerability, the instigation, or or uh, exacerbation, so making worse, schizophrenia or a schizophrenic uh, potential. So it looks like you know Sid Barrett, uh, the original singer of Pink Floyd, that only did a couple albums with them at the very very beginning before David Gilmour came on. He showed the signs of premorbid schizophrenia. He was a highly creative person. Um, which often kind of runs in the same circles, but he showed some of those early signs. And sometimes it's hard to distance, uh, you know, to untangle it because when do people experiment with drugs, their teens or their early twenties, you know, or when they first start, when do people develop schizophrenia teens, early twenties, typically that's kind of the most prominent, but, but it does seem that, uh, there are that there seems to be a reality there that for you know the the one or two percent of the population who suffer from disorders like that or show an identifiable an identifiable predisposition that they that could accelerate the onset and, and make I put it this way if if you're if you're hanging on to consensus reality by a thread to begin with the last thing you need is a big psychedelic experience which part of it part of the point is to have this radical disconnection which for a lot of people in the right settings appears to potentially be incredibly helpful but if you're already dangling at that precipice of of being able to engage with reality this might just kind of push you off you know um in a bad trajectory then we do know that thousands and tens of thousands of people at this point who have been in whether it's from the early era in the 50s and 60s in clinical trials or the more modern trials in the last 20 years, we don't see anybody without that identifiable predisposition, which we weed out. We look for that, and it of seems course. pretty reliable. And you can do that with standard, some standard good psychiatric inter- interview techniques um, and, and the person's history. You can weed those people out, but we haven't seen a single instance of, of that developing in kind of a, a psychologically health, healthy person. But the 20 healthy. years you've been doing this, basically, you're saying that. Hasn't yeah, happened. got it. Yeah, But the bad trip is real and people okay. can get um, in real trouble with that. And even though it can be overplayed and and uh, there is a reality that sometimes with a bad trip, uh, someone, again, does something stupid. And, yeah, you can get yourself really hurt or killed. Um Right. Because those experiences are that profound. So it shouldn't be surprising that 
again, the powerful tool can be can have bad. And the other thing I'll just say, say briefly, there's also the whole dimension of leveraging these things towards bad. So it's not urban legend that the CIA was studying these things for decades okay. as mind control agents and, 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 and interrogation agents. Um, and as potential weapons, like what if you drop this into a, a foreign leader's water, make them a fool of themselves? What if you gave it to a bunch of soldiers on the battlefield? Things like this were explored probably with some – actually, you know, they they determined that other drugs were probably better at that, the more dissociative agents. Um, the relatives of scopolamine and atropine, they're kind of called more delirious. In one sense, those are the true hallucinogens. You don't normally typically have real hallucinations on these classic psychedelics. Wow. But some of these other drugs um, – uh, like atropine, one of the ones that the that the the army was studying back in, in the fifties uh, and sixties was called BZ, and it actually tested a bomb that like released this gas and on U.S. Lord. soldiers to make right. them delirious on the battlefield. And then there was Charles Manson, the other kind of biggie, of course, where right. he he really it did really look credible, right? Was yeah, that LSD? he used the LSD, the acid, yep. to essentially brainwash his cult followers into like the most horrific thing that there was a coming race war and that they were amongst the white people that were going to have to um, restart society after the black people oh, were, I mean, God. absolutely evil, right. you know, ideology and framework, right. but they, they committed the Sharon Tate and other you know murders based on this, you know, brainwashing. Um, oh my God. You know, these aren't controlled clinical trials. But, of course. Uh, the, the, so the takeaway here. Honestly, is is that okay? Everything has the ability to do good and to do bad. It depends who's using it for what, with what intentions, and in what setting. Essentially, what safeguards, what setting? Right, absolutely. Got it. Now, having said all of that, um, Cindy's screaming, "Take a break!" I I want to establish one thing before we go to the break. What's the success rate that you have, Matt? And let's yeah. say quitting smoking, because because the success rate in the in Gen Pop is what like three percent getting people to quit. So what's yours? Our first pilot study, and so we didn't have a control group there, so we were just testing the waters. But it was so out of the park, it really justified moving forward into a more controlled trial. But the first trial, eighty uh, percent success rate um, at six months. My and so God. that's biological. We are testing people's pee and their breath samples, which complement in terms of the time course. So you're and person, you know, their self-report. So they're telling you this and all their biological metrics say they're free uh, of, of, of tobacco at um, at six months. And then that held up to about 67 percent. Actually, we looked 67 percent at at um, uh, at 12 months, but at we even went on a long-term follow-up because we were so impressed by that one-year data that we we asked permission from our our university review board to have the people sign consent to come back to do kind of a tack-on study where we just reassessed the same people. We found that at an average of two and a half years, that 60% were still biologically confirmed as absent, which is just astronomically the best medications the, out right. there. Like, right. like when um, uh, Chantix, you know, that was yes, uh, I 30 know some percent. It. Yep. At, and it, and it's vicious on the body, but I'm just going to. Right. Some serious <laughs> side effects. It's really most people can't get through the course of Chantix to get to the end of it. So having kind of established the 
the groundwork here, guys, or putting this into perspective for everybody listening, those numbers are unheard of for getting people to be successful and quitting an addiction like tobacco. Tobacco being, I'm under the impression, one of the most difficult to quit. It's not just the pharmacology, but it's the environment. Like you can't get away from it. Like with right with with exactly. food, and, and 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 so with tobacco, it's a little you know you can't kind of dissociate from your heroin using friend. You know, it's like you don't right. want to like you, you you can't get away. You're always going to be like two minutes away from pulling into the convenience store to you know to buy a pack. I just always remind people like. Every day people quit. And I think about this with weight loss. It's like you can you can get on the pessimistic route and like how what a challenge it is, but like every day people quit. Even with cold turkey, people should never give up. We know that your next attempt, you're gonna even if you so-called fail, it's really not a failure because we know statistically you're more likely to be permanently successful that next time around. All right, I got questions for you about treating mm-hmm. anxiety. I got questions for you about food addiction. Um, when we come back, we're going to answer um, all of your questions. But as I said, I want to get a little bit into the history of this because I think it gives it that much more credibility. Um, we're going to take a quick break for the sponsors and we will be right back with Dr. Matthew Johnson. All right, team. You know, I love Skims underwear because I've mentioned them and have been wearing them for, gosh, a little over a year now. So I finally had to try their bras, and Skims has delivered yet again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. Even the underwire bras I wear all day are so comfortable, I barely even notice I'm wearing them. Whether it's the weightless scoop bra, the fits everybody bra, the plunge bra, the fits everybody t-shirt bra, I always get them in sand, so you never notice them. Super comfortable. Love them. Wear them nonstop all the time. Shop Skims bras at skims.com now. Available in 62 sizes, 38 to 46 each, plus get free shipping on orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know I sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows. Your business was going great, but now your team is buried in manual work. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,025, one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Jillian. That's netsuite.com slash Jillian to get your own KPI checklist, netsuite.com slash Jillian. All right, we are back with Dr. Matthew Johnson. Um, I've gone on some tangents here. You mentioned that psychedelics have been incorporated throughout history, right? And, and okay, so smash me if I'm wrong. You've got the Amazon rainforest and ayahuasca, I, which mm-hmm. I believe is DMT. You've got Native right. Americans and peyote. Right, uh, which is mescaline. Mm-hmm. Which is mescaline. What else and why 
Do you, why so are they doing this? The, the, the so-called classic psychedelics, which is one pharmacological category, they work in a similar way in the brain, kind of like different benzodiazepines, whether it's Valium or Ativan or Xanax. Yeah, they're shades of the same th- basic mechanism. They feel the same. So that's like the classic psychedelic. All the ones you mentioned, plus magic mushrooms, which contain psilocybin, right, and right, LSD, right. which is 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 synthetic, but it's actually a close relative to something called LSA, which is in morning glory seeds. If you've heard of, you typically only yes, teenagers that can't get a hold of real drugs, but you can really trip on morning glory seeds. <laughs> oh, yeah, they oh really my work. God. I didn't realize that that was real. I thought it was like the banana peel, smoke a banana peel. Right, which doesn't work. A lot of people read the Anarchist <laughs> Cookbook and, yes. and, and even that will work if you smoke enough, I can tell you, because like you smoke enough of anything and you'll eventually not have very much, very much oxygen. Um, and so someone can catch a buzz off of smoking anything if they smoke enough of it, but that's all it is. <laughs> but the Morning but Glory Seeds are the real deal. They oh, really wow. are an LSD cousin, a shorter acting LSD cousin. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, those are the classic psychedelics and, and they, they activate a subtype of serotonin receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor. You have some other things out there that are sometimes called psychedelic, but they're really in a different pharmacological class. So MDMA, I consider it a, a some people don't even want to call it a psychedelic, but um, I, I do. I, I, it's just not a classic psychedelic. It works by releasing serotonin ac- across a wide and, and therefore able to activate a, a wide variety of serotonin receptors in the brain. But so it acts in this different way, but, and there's some overlap in its effects, uh, but it also enough difference. If you talk, it's more of a heart trip than a head trip. And, and yes. it's one way it's been described less likely to have a, a so-called bad trip where like all of reality is un, uh, unraveling. Ah, and you okay. don't really know who you are. That typically doesn't happen. There's exceptions to anything, but typically doesn't happen with MDMA. Which is frankly why it took off as a, as a as a recreational drug, really in an unprecedented rate in the 1980s when it was started to yep. be used in nightclubs in Texas, because very few people try it and say, "Oh, I don't like that." I mean, it might surprise a lot of people. A lot of people try opioids and and say, "This makes me queasy." It makes oh, me like it. they just don't like it. Hate, hate. Right? Does that have something to do with someone's? It's not my ethics. I mean, that's that's for sure. It, I physically feel horrible. I just, I feel out of control, but like, just like, I don't like it. Is that a biochemistry thing? Like I've seen Andrew Huberman talk about alcohol and how an alcoholic's predisposition, they have different have brain more of the chemistry. Effect. Yes. 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 And, and, and so, yes, there's some, we don't know a whole lot. I mean, like with alcohol, but we know some things. One of the big things I, I think it might be important for you to, real, to realize, and this is, Again, there's always exceptions, but there's a pretty strong trend here. The people that tend to not like opioids are people that they're not drinkers. And if they drink socially, it's very lightly. Me. And and, and, and they're kind of teetotalers across the board. But if, if someone's at least into <laughs> recreational drugs, including, you know, drinking, even if they're not an alcoholic, you're more likely to enjoy the opioid wow. effect. But but that's really one where now now stimulants are different. Pretty much anyone likes cocaine and amphetamine if you give it to them, um, you yep. know, to different degrees. But pretty much um, people like it. Um, opioids are, are are weird in, in that some people, I mean, it's the greatest thing 
since ever since sliced bread since they yep. were born and others say like i don't get it it just makes me queasy and feel weird and tired up and, and i can't think me and why do you it feel like i'm sick why do i want to feel like i'm sick right 100 and some people it. say that about alcohol you know because you could see you know depending on how much you drink same type of thing um so yeah the the, the differences are really interesting so someone might be careful if someone really you know if they really like drinking you might want to skip the opioid when you're offered, just recognizing, hey, you don't know whether you that person who might go off the the rails with I the understand. substance or not. Right. Like if you see, I, like, you know, there are people that lots of people in their family have become raging alcoholics and have died. And, you know, you should probably it, avoid it. So back to the cultural component. I remember as a kid and I can't remember the name of the movie, but I was really young. You you arguably were not born. This kid, a true story, gets kidnapped. I'm 48. I know I look young, but. Oh, my God, you're my age. Okay, okay. perfect. There was a movie about a kid whose dad was working in Brazil. He gets kidnapped, taken into the rainforest, raised by an indigenous tribe. His dad looks for him. I think, I think the kid's name was Tommy. Looks for him his whole life. Finally finds Tommy. Tommy's not leaving the tribe. Bottom line is they give them ayahuasca. This is like when it was not, right? No one knew about it. No one knew what ayahuasca was. And I remember being a kid and they, he went on this vision quest and they, I think they blew it up his nose. Oh yeah. And I mean, they saw God and I, as a kid was like, what's that? What are these guys doing? And how did they figure this out? So inherently, I think I understood that these were tools people were using to gain either a deeper connection to God or universe or more or whatever you want to label it right or using to get answers and i think i've always felt that way is that am i on the right track here with the 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 lsd the psilocybin the mescaline the the those things right the way i one way i put it is like they tend to orient people towards the big questions Yes, and, and it's not like there's like one kind of ground truth answer that people fall upon. But the one thing I think I can say for certain is that on average, people they tend to like whether you frame it as God or even if it's a Richard Dawkins style atheist, they tend to their mind tends to go to like what is the nature of reality? What is the universe? Yes. What is life yes. about? Why am I here? What is the whole point of this? All these the big questions and. And, uh, and I think it's important to keep in mind that there's plenty of, and I've written about this too, like there's plenty of examples of indigenous cultures. We we can get into a, a framework where we're kind of um, kind of idolizing these cultures and, you know, but humans are humans. And so there's examples, for example, uh, uh, there are examples of tribes that will get loaded up on like a DMT containing snuff to go headhunt the other tribe, uh, the opposing oh, tribe. And okay, I gotcha. You know, so these things are all again, they're tools, and maybe the cod that you access is like you know, part of that is you know, you know, warfare, you know, so because there are these examples of you know, you know, cult like behavior, and including oh, and gosh, the 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 inappropriate sex that's something we we need to, um, you know, the shaman then ends up sleeping with all the young, attractive oh people that come. Gosh. You know, that's a real thing. And we need to keep our Got eye it. on that if these are approved as medicines. We just have to really keep that in mind. And um, that is a, a risk. I think maybe it's time. And I, I've heard you describe it. So I'm, I'm going to act like I don't know. I want to talk about what it looks like to go see you. I'm a person 
with chronic anxiety. I'm a person with severe PTSD. I'm a smoker. I am a compulsive overeater. I, we're going to insert, right? Behavior mm-hmm. I am struggling with and can't undo. I'm at the end of my rope and I want to see Dr. Matthew Johnson. Mm-hmm. Walk me through what this looks like. So given those risks that I talked about, we do do a, a, a screening, both psychiatric and medical. It takes about two half days. So you're in you know, three or four hours, a couple of days. So something I haven't mentioned in terms of risk is uh, just um, severe heart disease. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So if you're that type of person that the doctor says you should not be shoveling snow and going up flights of steps, you probably shouldn't be having psilocybin because it raises the blood pressure and pulse modestly. So the same type of people that can, you know, one of the biggest, you know, going up steps, shoveling shows or having sex sends people, you know, who are in that category. They have strokes and heart attacks and they show up to the ER or they, you know, die. Gotcha. You know, that's a thing. But but one of the nice things is that for the vast, for people not in that category, there's really no known physiological overdose. In other words, you, we can give a thousand times, unless you're in that category of severe heart risk, we can give you a thousand times a dose and there's no reason to think you're going to die doesn't kill your liver or stop your breathing or, 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 you know, give you a, a heart attack or stroke the way most drug kill people. One of those ways, if you have too much of them, where it's alcohol, cocaine, one of the few medically documented people who have died from magic mushrooms is, was a heart transplant patient. So obviously okay. in that category, right. it's like obviously easy to screen out, take their blood pressure, their pulse, take their medical history and, and do a psychiatric interview, a structured psychiatric interview. You ask them about their life history, their relatives, and so you get a hint, um, more than a hint. You have a good uh, way to assess whether they're in that likely, like, oh, gosh, that looks like they might have schizophrenia or show early signs of schizophrenia. And those are the two biggies. But then you, after that screening, say, okay, you qualify. Do you, do you still want to go? And there's also the informed consent process. That even precedes the screening where it's not just a form, you know, but it's a conversation, including for these studies with me as the as the top scientist running the study for a particular study where I really have a heart to heart and say, let me really tell you about, let me really tell you about the vets that I've had who have been in combat, who said this replaces, you know, the, the most extreme, scariest experience they've ever had in their life. I mean, it's humbling. I've never been through combat when you've had multiple vets tell you this, it's like you pay attention. And you also have multiple people that say, no matter how hard you tried to prepare me, you never could have fully told me what that was going to be like that was so far so i tell people that like how do you inform consent tell people that people pretty extreme. frequently say yeah. yeah so just telling them that in itself i think has value it's like if you're not ready to sign up for something that a good number of people go through and say wow i could have never truly known what i was in for like then this isn't the study for you so so they're past the consent process they're past the screening then you had the preparation phase which um, like if it's the smoking study, um, that that's about eight hours and it ranges between studies from four to eight hours. I think something in there is the right range where across multiple meetings, so it's like four meetings of two hours each where we're going over two things in the case of smoking, about half of it is preparation for psilocybin itself, the experience. The other half of it is really just preparing for quitting smoking. Um, so it's what you call cognitive behavioral therapy for quitting smoking, which is kind of the main standard therapy for quitting smoking. Do things like before you quit, don't just do it on the fly. 
We'll set a, 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 a quit date a few weeks ahead of time. We'll work towards that goal. Keep smoking during that time, but keep a smoking diary. Let's learn a little more about the patterns surrounding your smoking, the thoughts and the feelings, the consequences, the the the, 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 the cues in the environment that prompt you to smoke, what roles, like, oh, use it to meet people, use it to bond with people at work when you step outside food, of smokers. What about food, though, Matt? And I don't mean to interrupt oh, you, but I would say the same about thing. food. I would ask all those questions. When do you find yourself eating? Why do you find yourself eating? Yes. Are you actually physically hungry? You know, are you feeling lonely? Are you feeling stressed? Are you feeling sad? Is this how you bond with your husband? Is this, I mean, so, so. Yeah. Wouldn't this be uh, applicable? Like, yeah. For and I, I've written this and work that, that this is that, that obesity and other food disorders. I mean, we're, we're. A number of groups now are looking at anorexia, which I yes, it may or may not check out to why that's a really tough nut to crack. But um, I mean, it's the most fatal psychiatric disorder. Um, but certainly on the obesity side and what you, I would call food addiction, I think it's an incredible um, opportunity that needs to be looked. I haven't started that work yet, but I've had plenty you of people reach to. out. I really want to look at it and plan to. Everything you're talking about with smoking just parallels but like they don't know why. absolutely you know and, and, and the thing with 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 the thing i really like about eating in one sense it's more of a challenge because food no gray area you need to eat so you're inherently in that difficult position of of needing to moderate right yes and so that you can't just you can't get what do people say in like aa and other 12 people places and things you you don't want to get away from people places and things associated with food that's called humanity right um so, but i think all of these challenges make this a good um reason where psychedelic therapy could help because people feel that they've they have these aha experiences and sometimes it's stuff that they've told themselves but now they feel it more in their heart, not just in their mind, or they feel it in their bones, whatever your analogy is, but that like, it's so obvious, like what the issue is. And they feel it so deeply that that has a sticking power. It's because people have experiences and they learn something from that. So it's way more like psychotherapy or life experiences. It's way more in that category of how they, you know, how falling in love for the first time changed you or or, or visiting another culture for the first time changed you, or, wow. or these, having a child changed you. It's more like those experiences. We actually have a narrative. We're we're creatures of narrative, of stories. And it's like, God. no, something happened to me, you know? And, and yeah, like you're not some completely wildly different person, but people do change in life. And not just with psychedelics. People learn something and they there's a self-sustaining nature to it because you're reestablishing a new normal, like the person, even if they're in the minority, the person that does, even when the personal trainer isn't there, they are continuing. They, they keep those habits. They're doing enough to maintain it on a daily basis. And there can be a feed forward cycle where once you make contact with that reinforcement, you know what it's like to live like a fitter person. A lot of my research is just understanding the psychology of short-term versus long-term thinking um, and yes. how that's very, very much tied to addiction. And by the yes. way, to obesity, which is another, it's so there's always the short-term, oh, it would feel better. I'm trying to quit. It'd be better have the drink now. But I know that, you know, given a number of years of being sober, things are going to be so much better, easier said than done. Same thing with the donut versus the healthy lifestyle. If you can kind of harness those aha moments 
and combine it in a way like with it's not just the psilocybin for quitting smoking it's like oh we're also giving you just the bread and butter tools like we're doing yes. things like like research has shown how to deal with the so-called absence violation effect which might sound fancy but everyone will recognize this like if you've quit and it's the same thing if you've fallen off a diet or whatnot like you say so you've slipped we know that dwelling in guilt not only is not helpful but it's detrimental you are yep. more likely to fully relapse or to take that one right. cigarette and now buy the full pack. But research has shown that if you really train people this, it doesn't have that detrimental effect. That if you say, if you found yourself smoking a cigarette or even a pack, whatever it is, just catch yourself. Don't dwell in guilt. We see it as a learning experience and say, aha, and this is not just, you know, wishful thinking. This science backs this up. Now you are literally more likely to be successful. Now you know a little bit more about your weak points and about those situations, you know, oh yeah, it was the bad day where I went to the bar, blah, blah, blah. It's this like, okay, my trigger. maybe next time you have a bad believe. day, don't go to the bar because those yes. added up to lead to the cigarette. Like, right. Or whatever it is, and then strategize different ways to be like, okay, next time in that situation, I could do this instead, I could do this instead. Oh, or I can recognize before going to that, like whatever situation where I was at risk and just not go to it, whatever it is, but you could treat it as a learning experience. And we know that with smoking, that is way better than, you know, this kind of dwelling and guilt thing. So we do those sort of bread and butter things like that, that we know help, you know, you're more likely to successfully yes. quit if you use these, this, this toolkit of, of little tricks, you know, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I have a bunch of listener questions for you, but I, I'm going to try to, I know I've taken a ton of your day and I try to keep them tight. We'll be right back for our sponsors with Dr. Matthew Johnson. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We are back, um, and I'm going to be asking Matt a bunch of your questions, a lot of which kind of wrap into this question, and you touched on it before of like, okay, we're not going to check some box of addiction, serious issue, but I, I do have a lot of questions about anxiety, PTSD, general wellness, feeling lost, looking for answers that aren't, you know, I'm on a one-way path to hell here with this, you know, on crystal meth or, you know, mm -hmm. pack a day. Do you, do you treat people like that? Asking for a friend, Matt. And um, seriously though, I, I, I mean, I've often thought like, I wonder if this can take me to the next level, right? Or, and I got a lot of questions about that. Clinically, what are you tackling outside of nicotine or let's say addiction? Right. There's a range. And one thing it's important for folks to know, you know, unfortunately, one-off treatment isn't 
possible. So there has to be an established study that's vetted through the university and the FDA okay. and the DEA. The biggie is the FDA. Um, you know, so even though there's, you know, someone's, I've had tons of people reach out to me about, oh, they say I have porn addiction, like God gets, and it's like, that is yeah, a huge and, I, problem, and I say, actually, yeah, and I huge. really think this stuff could work to help with it, but it's like, I don't have a study like in it. It's in that category of like, you know, weight loss and other things. Okay. So you can't treat that yet until you have an official study around it. You're saying, yeah, I do have studies of uh, so-called healthy normal. So like one I'm about to launch that have taken a year and a half to get approved. This is a real chance to get back is in creative professionals, people who have, um, in some type of broadly defined, some sort of creative profession. And they feel at least some sense of kind of loss of the spark. You know, kind yes, of. Yes, that's exactly yes. So there are those studies, and that's one that I have coming up. Um, is is looking at these you know creative professionals broadly defined. So I have work to treat PTSD that's about to launch. Nice. Um, uh, with psilocybin, some work using LSD, which is exciting. It's a very long, longer acting drug, so more of a twelve-hour plus experience than a five to six-hour experience. Was like psilocybin, but you, using LSD to treat chronic pain. So helping people who are using opioids for chronic pain who want to cut down or or stop, and it's flexible because some, you know, easier said than done, but. Thankfully, there's more of a recognition of the opioid sparing effect. Hey, if we can get you to half your dose of ongoing, it's going to improve quality of life, invigorate you. Um, so with that kind of, and then another study helping people with opioid, more kind of full-blown opioid addiction. Yeah, that as a collection of studies, that's a kind of a snapshot of some of the things that I'll be um, leading going going forward in the next few years. But I do, you know... I'll continue to do studies in people that in so-called healthy, normal, like research, you know, in other words, people um, without the nominal disorder to treat, because it's, you know, one of the things about this work, and I've done hundreds of patients with, you know, with a disorder and, and, and hundreds of, I've seen hundreds of patients with, you know, the healthy, normal type, you know, this work really just like highlights the fact that we're all human and we all have our issues, whether it's diagnosable or not. And some of those issues aren't even in a category of um, I mean, the DSM or yeah, the DSM. It's thank you, the psychiatric bible. Yeah, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> my you know, mom, so for example, my mom. This is what she does. Yeah, oh, that's I right. She's a psychoanalyst. So yeah, I grew up with it. I grew up with it, Matt. Some yeah. of the like one of the earliest clinical uses before it was made illegal of MDMA, which is therapeutically very promising, and probably is going to be the first psychedelic approved unless you count ketamine, which is a little different, but um, that's my next question Proof for PTSD. And that's in a really solid, I haven't done that work, but good colleagues that I have at, at at the group maps have done that work. And they're probably going to be the first um, probably within a couple of years to get one of these approved by the FDA. But, um, well, one of the first uses actually, even before the PTSD treatment was couples therapy. And guess what? There's nothing, there's no DSM criteria for a failing marriage or failing relationship. Is it a societal problem? <laughs> yeah. It's just wow. one of these things where like you're the way you define these things, it's like, well, oh, but it's not a you know, there's all kinds of reasons. What's the path forward? Could FDA ever approve it for that? How would you <sighs> so you know, there's a lot of challenges, like, you know, could we ever get to a point, do you think, where 
someone can just see you for marriage counseling, or I could just come to you and be like, Matt, I just feel stuck. It's like, I can't get to the next level. Just the way I would call a therapist. I, I think so. Happen? Right. Because there's also, there's, there's off label use, um, which is the technical term for if FDA approves it for this purpose, it could still be used for other things once it's out okay. there in, in, in the world in doctor's hands. So, um, and another aspect of that is like, you know, comorbidity is the fancy word for having more than one diagnosable thing. And that's more of, of the rule than the exception. So usually depression, there is anxiety and vice versa, you know, PTSD. I mean, there's an addiction, there's a, you know, addiction and alcoholism kind of go, I mean, like, let's say this person has depression and they're being treated for depression, or, or maybe it's something else being used off label. And, and you start to see, oh, wow, this person said like they had an everyday porn addiction for for 13 years and they haven't used porn in, in like a year and a half since their session, like that, like people, clinicians start to take note and be like, what the hell? And, and then they talk to their colleagues, like, I had three patients like that. Like, yes. and that's when he's like, now we need the clinical trial. Now we need the clinical trial to do. And even though like someone could get it, like maybe it's not insurance covered because it wasn't what it's not, it's complex. The practice but of medicine they, now though, there, you can't do it yet, but we yeah. think it'll get there. So a bunch of dosing questions, microdosing. Yeah. Um, everybody's doing this. They're doing this with. I'm hearing crazy shit. People microdosing lithium for brain health. Uh, microdosing mushrooms. Microdo. What are your thoughts on this? Is this bullshit? We don't Technical quite term. know with. Is so one of the. <laughs> there's always <laughs> some bullshit mixed into all of it. There's like that's like the world, you know. But, but the. One of the first thing to say is that the vast majority of this, the last 20 years of the psychedelic renaissance in research has been focused on what you would call heroic doses, like real, like salient, like overwhelming doses. That's been the treatment model. So it's actually, oh, which is actually, is a, which is actually larger is than a recreational dose. So Got a heroic it. dose is actually more than most people would ever want to take it at a party. I gotcha. And even the the recreational dose is higher than a, a, a microdose. So most people, and there's no, you know, exact definition, but most people would consider, depending on how you count it, a, a microdose to be about one twentieth of a recreational to heroic dose. You know, so you're talking about if you're talking about micrograms of LSD, it's about you know ten or to 20 micrograms of LSD, whereas a kind of a, a standard recreational dose is sort of 50 to 100 micrograms, but like a heroic oh. dose would be more of like 200 to 300 oh, micrograms. With mushrooms, wow. most people aren't going to know milligrams of psilocybin because that, that's what you know. You, the you baggie get. of the mushrooms. Yeah, that's you get know. the mushrooms. So it's how many grams of dried mushrooms. And obviously there's variation of mushrooms, just like variations in the vitamin C and sugar in your oranges. But based on C samples, um, we know about the heroic dose we're talking about is somewhere between an eighth ounce and quarter ounce of of mushrooms, which a lot of people for a recreational dose, they'll score an eighth and they'll split it two or three ways. You know, yep. People are going to go, they're definitely going to feel different. They might get some visual distortions, but yes. gobbling up that whole eighth ounce or even more, of the, that's more the heroic dose. Um, oh, so a microdose okay. is taking Got like, that does you know, like sound heroic. one yes. gram um you know so an eighth would be what like three and a half grams uh, something like that and so gotcha. you know you're talking about um you know a much uh you know a much you know smaller you know uh, 
you know, dose. Uh, and, and so we don't know, there's only been a handful of studies on microdosing. I think there's a okay. lot of placebo involved there. I bet there's something real for the treatment of depression as the most likely thing. I think some of the stuff we're seeing with ADHD type effects and like as an Adderall alternative, I suspect that might be a lot of microdosing, but I'm an empiricist. Like in, in one sense, it wouldn't be at all surprising if chronically medicating the serotonin system. And again, it's oh. primary effects on the serotonin. Like we've known that since the 1950s with the first generation of, of, of modern antidepressants. Um, you know, chronically augmenting the serotonin system can help some people to at least some degree with depressive symptoms. And so um, in modern day, those are SSRIs, but it's the same basic mechanism going back to the 50s with the older generation. So I would say there's probably yeah. something real. If it works, it's more like a standard psychiatric medication where it works so long as you keep taking it because it's more of like symptom reduction. And, it. and it's, you know, taking it, most people yep. take it once every few days rather than every day, but still it's chronically, you know, once you go off of it, you're going to stop reaping the benefit. Um, and so it's more, to me, it's kind of like shoving the psychedelics into more of a, a standard psychiatric model, which is not the Got paradigm it. shifting, but I don't want to dismiss it at all. And, and uh, especially, like I said, for stuff like depression and not for all of it, I wanted to test it like, Hey, test it as a for ADHD, you know, probably not on my short list, given that there's so much. And I, again, yeah. I don't see that in that really paradigm shifting category, like we're seeing with the heroic dose stuff. Yes. Some very recent work, um, you know, would suggest that like it increases anxiety a little bit, which shouldn't be surprising. So it maybe have effects on the uh, depression, but at the risk of making people feel a little more anxious. Um, there is evidence that even at microdoses that, um, you have some uh, more difficulties judging, estimating time, for example. So you're cut a little bit of cognitive impairment, not major, but, you know, which isn't a, a problem at all if you're laying on the couch for like six hours looking to trip out and discover <laughs> the mission. But if you're driving to work and taking care of your, you know, kids and you're, you know, doing the budget yeah. for your multi-million dollar company, it's like, yeah, you might want to have, you might want to have more accurate time uh <laughs> perception rather than less Most accurate. got it um <laughs> the heroic dose i i've heard you say that a lot of the people you work with describe it at like nf they can't describe it um but they just like who they are melts away and they feel one with everything and i've also been seeing all this stuff about people with cancer having peace, right? Like coming to terms, I've heard you talk about like, like coming yeah. to terms with no longer being afraid to die. I, I know so many people, I think everybody's a little bit afraid to die and as great of a life as I've had. And as much as I feel like, well, if it ended tomorrow, I'm a lucky girl. You know, I don't want to leave my kids, but if that wasn't a factor I had to worry about, I'd right. be more at peace with it than most, but there's mm -hmm. still a little bit of like, Oh God, that's, that's, scary as hell. And I'm hearing that this is really providing so much peace and so much calm for terminal cancer patients. And it sounds a bit like that heroic dose scenario you've described. I'm wondering if you could, what happens now I've taken that heroic dose and we're like way beyond what makes you pick up a cigarette, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about the life as you know it, the fabric of reality, the true meaning of everything that is 
What's happening here as best as you can describe it? Well, in the brain, it seems there's a, a massive change in the network activity across the brain. So you get a whole lot of increase in communication or synchronization, which is kind of a signal for communication across the brain. So, you know, there's a lot of siloing in the nervous system where, you know, like a company, it's like, okay, you the accounting department's doing that and the whatever, the R&D <laughs> department's doing this. And it's like, yeah, we get together in, in an organizational fashion and there's a hierarchy and there's the exec, you mentioned earlier, the executive function with the frontal lobes and, you know, but, you know, there's a lot of compartment, you know, there's some integration, but there's a lot of compartmentalization. What you see during these experiences, a whole lot of swirling of that. Yeah. I've usually used the example of it's like the, um, you know, the internet coming into society where it used to have you more contact with your neighbors, but now you might have more contact with someone in Pakistan and you have less, some of the, the local brain networks, um, that are normally in heavy communication are all of a sudden less. So that's like, yeah, it's like the, the internet being introduced to society where you get maybe less communication amongst the, the folks you normally communicate with, but at the expense of more communication with folks you normally don't communicate with. So this kind of mass that's probably related to some of these extraordinary experiences of reporting of you know, not, you know, going beyond one's normal sense of self, which people call ego loss, which is, you know, right. not the best scientific term, but something like that. You know, people saying, right. I just felt like I was this flow with the universe. And it was like this whole idea that I was a separate entity was just this kind of like ridiculous, like kind of little game that I've been playing. And I felt more of like this broader, like, in you know, sense of being connected, like the rest of humanity. Like Jungian collective universe. conscious. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people would, you know, frame it in those terms. And, you know, there's variation, but but stuff along those themes. And we do see that the more people have, the more the experience is like that. And collectively, it's kind of called the mystical experience, okay. which involves not just a sense of oneness, but a sense of transcending time and space Jesus. and a sense of paradoxicality, paradoxicality <laughs> and ineffability. In other words, that sense that it's beyond words. People that have in a positive mood, people that have more experiences that are more like that tend to be more successful quitting smoking tend to you know right. be less depressed and anxious amongst cancer patients you know six months later this type of thing so i think it reminds people how much of our normal experience reality really is just a a sliver of what's like say you're dealing with depression or, or or smoke these are all way addiction these are all ways of being mentally stuck and you just become convinced that's just the way it is that's like yes you know that's just i was wired wrong and it's just that's modern society which is evil and it's just i have no escape and and you have yeah, one of these it's experiences the victim it's mentality like, they can't break out of or they just feel trapped in a prison Yes. I get right. It. And, and so this is, and, and which is frankly, I just think that's the best description of what's really going on with addiction. It's not about brain chemistry. Yes, that's part of the machinery, but the reason why, why addiction treatment is such an abysmal place and, and frankly, the limitations on depression treatment, I really consider depression a form of addiction in the sense these are all ways of being very narrowly mentally and behaviorally stuck. You're like, you're in a prison. And this is a way, just a glimpse, like to a prisoner, it's like, Maybe that prison wasn't that. Maybe that wall is not 18 feet. Yeah. Maybe it's 18 inches, mm -hmm. but you've convinced yourself that it's insurmountable. And that's the best way to keep a prisoner, like the self-imposed, um, you know, doom, you know, mentality. And um, 
what was that from the Shawshank Redemption? Uh, it's like you, you've been institutionalized. Like you, you've lost oh. all hope. Like you're not, yeah. you're here the rest of your life and that's what it is. You're just a smoker. You're wired wrong. Like whatever. You start when yeah. you're a kid and it's too late. The funny fat guy. Yeah. It's like the yeah. narrative that you, you, cannot shake. Yeah. And you, you just got the bad genetics instead of yes, like, yeah, the, maybe I have oh, more of a challenge God. than most people, but maybe actually when yes. I overcome that challenge, I'll feel even better. And I'll show the people who had, might even have an easier time how much it is possible. And so just that glimpse of that wider reality of like, maybe I can't do everything, but I can do a whole lot. You know, it's like, I can actually just the whole idea. I can actually, I've had smokers tell me this. It's like, my God, and I call these dumb moments because even when it comes out of their mouth, they say, I know it sounds stupid, but I could just decide to quit. I can flip oh. it off like a but I can really just do that. I can do that. It must be so incredible to hear that, though, because I hear all the time, I can't stop. I can't stop. Like, you can stop. And as soon as you. Yeah, they don't have that reality to believe in. You know what I mean? They're like, no, I can't. You don't, And you don't understand. But it's like getting them to understand why they're doing it. I can even get them to go. Yeah, I am choosing to eat when I'm not hungry. Yes, I am for some reason choosing to be a bigger size, but helping them understand why yeah. and why it's so hard to let go of whatever it's provided them is like, that's where I'm, we need Matt Johnson, man. Me too. Oh, thank you. Please and people me, like I need me. a clinical trial on this, Matt. Come on, yeah, man. This is really getting me thinking more about it. And Please, I'm telling it, you, it, dude. I do think that, that psychedelic experiences, when properly applied, can kind of bring that humanity back and and help people to kind of see over that fence, see over that yes. wall, and be... It's been likened to the helicopter ride to the top of the mountain that then... Oh. I love that. Like before you were just wandering through the forest and you're like, is there really a summit somewhere? I've just, I've just, I've bought in some story thinking this path is leading. I've been walking around wandering the wilderness for 40 years, whatever you know. It's like, yes! I don't think and it's like, oh, I just gave him a quick trip and no, it didn't take the discipline and everything that it, that really climbing the mountain takes. But seeing that there really is a summit, like can, yes. can like, okay, it now I'm ready to hike 15 miles a day. Exactly. Now I'm it, ready to like, it gives them the why, like they see their true potential with the, in these moments that is almost impossible to illustrate. And like, I can cheat it. Sometimes I feel like a crack dealer. You know what I mean? I'm like, look, look, you just did a push up. Look at, see, you thought you were, you thought you weren't athletic. Look at you. You just ran a mile. Look, look, look what you're capable of. You know, you're, you're against the flow of the constant narrative that was programmed into them when they're young and you're like chipping away at it. But it's like, I have a literally a, a chisel the size of a, a fucking screwdriver. And, you know, it's like, nor do I have, by the way, I am not a psychiatrist. I am not a psychoanalyst and I'm not a behavioralist. So I feel like if we give the proper expert, right, this monster jackhammer, but the jackhammer's got to be in the hands of the right person, which, you know, we talked about, which is you or an expert like yourself, your colleagues, and in a safe setting. And, and I think real magic is possible. And I'm just, I'm positive you can help people with this struggle. And, and I'm seven out of 10 Americans are dying of this shit, Matt, like they are. And it's either, the, it's the top cause of bankruptcy is an obesity related health condition. And seven out of 10 are going to become 
deathly ill with this, whether it's cancer, yeah. heart disease, metabolic diseases. I'm not going to, I want you to do this work. Anyway, I know you have your I can feel that. Like, Put it that up gosh, there with that, porn. I love Put the passion. I wanted to go, uh, like a porn addiction is a big problem, but I just, I, I would be, I would give anything to see what you could do with this problem because like I can tell them what to eat and I can tell them how to exercise, but getting them to show up for it consistently and being willing to lose what the food provided and what the bigger body size provided is like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm painfully ill-equipped here. You've given me so, so much inspiration with the work you're doing and, and, and who you are as a person. And I love everything um, about what you're doing. And now that I've gotten to meet you, I just think you're the fucking shit. But how do I learn more, explore more, maybe get to see you? Like what, what, what is the way for people to continue their relationship with you? Um, probably the most active. I try to stay active on, on Twitter. I've been trying to get my Instagram game going, but it's, it's just, it's a, I'm kind of stuck in the, you know, in, in my own box. strike me as an Instagram guy, but a, but a YouTube I, I don't get the guy, whole picture yes. thing. Everything has to be a picture. <laughs> anyway, Twitter, I, I try to, you know, both in kind of like, you know, letting about, you know, certainly about my own work and, and about colleagues work in the field. That, that, that's great. Um, I try to keep active there. So that's drug underscore researcher. Um, drug underscore researcher is my my Twitter handle and my Instagram handle, even though I, I only post. put out like two or three Instagrams. <laughs> I don't even know what to call it. Not you need to do a heroic dose and then just make Instagram content. That's what <laughs> I, I just... That's what I want to see. I've got all these ideas for you, Matt. You need to have me in your life, buddy. Like, well, I wanted just... to say just the same, what you said, yeah, <laughs> same. I feel, you know, humbled and honored you would say that, but I feel the same way about you. Um, really, you know, thank you. I think you're an inspiration to people. And, uh, and again, I think a lot of the stuff, what I think makes this work meaningful, you kind of intuitively get more than the vast majority of scientists. So yeah, thank you. If you're enjoying the show, do us a big favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it just helps us get the show out there, get heard by more people. We really appreciate it.